Today's episode is brought to you by AuthenticStorytelling.net, where you can find the latest content performance news. Today's guest is Carrie Carlson, VP of Social Insights at Leetail. We're talking about algorithms and what you need to know about them. Hello, everyone. It's Christoph Trapp. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Business Storytelling Podcast. Today's guest is Carrie Carlson. She's the VP of Social Insights at Leetail. And we're, we will be talking about algorithms. Hate them, love them, they exist. Carrie, thanks for joining yes. us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So we started talking about algorithms on Twitter, of course. Everybody, Twitter has an algorithm too. Um, mm-hmm. But first of all, what is, what's the definition what, um, you know, in, in this concept, this context? I mean, really, I think the the context we're talking about are um, an algorithm is just a a fancy name, I think, for a set of instructions uh, within an application. If this happens, then do that or do these things in this order. Um, But I think with the way that you and I are talking about them, it's really thinking about the uh, engagement algorithms that are used on platforms like Twitter, almost every social network, and increasingly a lot of... Um, content discovery networks. Uh, I think our sort of the impetus for our conversation was about the algorithm behind uh, Apple News. Uh, so there's a there's some software behind that, that when you pop open Apple News in the morning to see what's happening in the world, or when you pop onto Facebook or Twitter, the platform is deciding what content to show you. And it's using an algorithm to do that. It's taking into account things that it's seen you do before, things that it's seen people like you do, and making uh, a pretty good guess about what kind of content it should show you that you're going to find useful and engaging. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, I guess. Um, I've seen Flipboard. I assume they have an algorithm with how they tag things. Uh, And I have my my blog, Authentic Storytelling, feeding to my Flipboard magazine. And every once in a while, it tags something for a story in a category. And I'm like, that is not even mentioned in the category, in the story. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the thing with the algorithms is it allows each of us to have for my flipboard to be unique and satisfying to me and your flipboard experience to be more unique and satisfying to you while flipboard only has to build one product. But the, the hands off approach, the work the algorithm is doing on our behalf um, is very to varying degrees is susceptible to getting some kind of a, a bad input or a wrong signal. And then because every future decision builds on the previous set of data or decisions, that bad signal can get compounded um, pretty rapidly to, to some pretty astonishing effects. I, I think, you know, a few years ago, there was what they called a flash crash um, on the New York Stock Exchange. And that was ultimately attributed to there are a lot of algorithms sitting there making decisions about trading. And essentially a, a bad input got put into these algorithms that triggered a whole bunch of other things to sell in short order and like dumped hundreds of points off the stock seconds. Um, so, I mean, that's a, a really dramatic example. You know, uh, the, the more sort of pedestrian example is uh, like you said, when you look at something and you go, what? <laughs> this is, this, I don't like stuff like this, or this is not the right category. And so it's a symbol. I was just thinking about that last My My 12 um, year old got a $25 gift card to Amazon. And she says, could you give me your iPad to, uh, so I can see what I want to buy? 
and mm-hmm. I wanted to go, no. <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect example. I you know, don't tell Amazon, but I share an Amazon Prime account with my young adult son. And so it, it, it thinks that I am, you know, my recommendations think that I am some bizarre combination of a, you know, middle-aged cat lady and an avid video gamer um, because his purchases and my purchases are interspersed. And so uh, the recommendations are pretty wild sometimes. Well, and, the, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't buy anything inappropriate on Amazon, which I don't even know what that would be. But, um, but I did look at Scott Stratton. He just, uh, mm, you know, mm-hmm. he had the, the unmarketing guy and he just published a new book and it's called something like the Jackass Whisperer. Yes. And so, <laughs> so he's <that> fantastic. Was, <laughs> he, he is pretty funny. Um, but so that book, you know, was still, show- I didn't buy it. I was just reading the sample and I didn't get back to it, which the sample was actually pretty good. And um, so it was still listed, right? It's like what you just looked at. So my 12 year old said, you were Googling jackass or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually it's kind of a nightmare at Christmas time uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, it, and this will sort of veer us out a little bit into another set of algorithms, which is. Um, ad retargeting. So as we're all yeah. browsing around, you know, on the family computer about what to buy so and so for Christmas. Well, if you look at it and you don't buy it, you know, every time you're going around, it's going to follow you around the internet for the next 30 days. Hey, you want to buy these mittens? Did you want to buy this book? Um, and so it becomes really challenging during the holidays, I think, sometimes to uh, keep your gift selections under wraps. The, uh, the algorithms are bound and determined to make sure everybody knows what you've been shopping for. Absolutely. So you, there's really two sets of problems we see on, especially when it comes to social media, right? One is mm-hmm. the consumer problem. And then one is the marketer problem. So mm-hmm. for the consumer, how do you actually get the stuff you want to look at? And for the marketer, how do you get into the feeds that you want to be in? So let maybe we can tackle them one by one here. Um, so for the consumer, how, like, I mean, how does it look? Like, what's the we're talking about that one example I was just thinking about is, you know, I was I was helping some brands here in, in a category that I would really never look at if mm-hmm. it was just me. And then I, I, I finished that project. And now I'm still, you know, I mean, a month later here, I'm still getting content from those categories, even though I don't want to. Right, right. And, and, and this is a place where I think actually the advertising algorithms, you know, which are are just a more specialized version, they're, you know, trying to figure out how to show you an ad you're going to click on, um, are actually smarter in this way, I think, than some of the content or the social media platform algorithms, because an ad cookie expires usually after 30 days. So if after 30 days of chasing you around all your favorite websites, showing you that thing you looked at and put in the cart and didn't buy, you haven't bought it, they basically give up. (laughs) or they presume you've made the purchase if you if you go to any car websites and look at any car models you know you'll be bombarded because you're now in a category called this person is in the market to buy a new car Um, but if after 30 days you haven't engaged with any of those ads those brands will stop spending their money trying and move on Um, where in the content world there's not necessarily an imperative to expire content out or to say oh let me look at um you know, what you've engaged with and remove things you haven't. We don't do a good job sort of cleaning up behind the algorithm with the real customer experience in mind. Um, and the example I have is I, I, I was looking at my inbox and doing some cleanup and I realized that 
Um, one time, about 18 months ago, um, we ordered Domino's pizza online. Um, it's kind of like a, you know, a very rare indulgence that we will sort of have Domino's pizza. So we, we did this. Domino's has emailed me literally every single day <laughs> for a year. I have opened zero of those emails. So I don't blame them for trying. As a marketer, I don't blame them for trying. And some of the subject lines are compelling. But I'm not eating pizza every day. I, it's not adding any value to my life to ask me every day if I want to order Domino's. And sometimes they email me at lunchtime and sometimes at dinner. As a marketer, I appreciate what they're trying to do. But ultimately, it fails as a consumer because I have not engaged with any of these tactics and they have not stopped. <laughs> so, you know, it was interesting. So yesterday's episode of the, the podcast, I talked about um, the it, it wasn't truly about the spray and pray approach. But the example I gave, you know, some of you heard this, obviously. Um, I, so I'm in the market to probably buy a new suit or a new jacket mm -hmm. or something like that. So I'm a tall guy, right? So I got the, um, there's a uh, tall, tall and big store or whatever you call them. Mm -hmm. And they sent me the card, right? Like direct mail piece, $20 off or 20% off, some, whatever it is, but something, sure. right? And I'm like, oh, awesome. I'm going to use this. And so when I go in and I redeem that, they will count that as success for direct marketing. I can just see some marketing sure. VP at some point telling me, oh, my goodness, direct mail, it's working. And so the argument I made yesterday is, you know, sure, it is working. But had you sent me an email, I would have totally just printed out the email. Right. Mm. And then you would have said the email marketing campaign worked. So it's so yeah. it's like it's it's a tough balance. Right. Like. You have to spray and pray a little bit, but you also have to be strategic. So I bet you Domino's, when they do that to a million people and they have 10,000 conversions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they wouldn't do it if it didn't work at all. But as you know, what, what it neglects is, you know, and, and again, as a marketer, it's almost like, I can't think of what one of these movies are, but like, it's almost like you can see the overlay over the digital universe, right? Where you're like, yeah. I know you're collecting my information. Like, I'm, you know, I, I know it. I'm not, I mean, I'm a sophisticated marketer. I understand you're collecting my information. And if you make good use of it, that seems to be in my interest primarily, I am absolutely fine with that. Like Amazon does a really great job of, you know, I know they're keeping track of everything I look at. If I'm, you know, in the search results, if I even hover on something for an extra moment, they're taking note digitally, but they're using that information. Every time I come to Amazon, you know, the recommendations say, here's something that you looked at recently. Here's something I'm recommending based on what you looked at recently. Here's something I'm recommending from our brand partners. So I can see how they're using my information. Now, to be, you know, if I'm cynical, they're probably using my information a bunch of other ways as well, but I don't care, <laughs> like, because they're giving me a better experience. They're making it easier and faster for me to get what I want when I come to Amazon. And so it seems like a fair exchange. Now, in contrast, um, you know, a lot of the problems I think that Facebook has run into is they're also keeping track of a lot of information. Now, information about how I engage with the people in my life and what we're talking about, and particularly in what I believe in is positioned to me as a sort of private message, um, taking that data 
and using it for the company's benefit to sell more ads and really only marginally using it for my benefit. Like, hey, remember you and this person have been friends for nine years. Like if we've been friends for nine years, I remember that. Like I, you know, it, it's not, that's marginally useful information to me. <laughs> um, but they're getting a lot of value on the information they're talking about me for that accrues to their benefit. And I think this is where people get um, understandably upset about, mm-hmm. you know, data collection and, and the handling of that data. And it really comes back to this, you know, where, where is the balance in the customer relationship? I accept that if I'm using these digital tools, my data is being collected. But what am I getting in exchange in terms of value? Amazon gives me a lot of value for the information that I make available to them. Facebook, not so much. And then when you compound that, when you find out that Facebook has actually mismanaged that data or sold that data to some sort of questionable partners, um, then people become really very, um, very unhappy and, and understandably very skeptical about the need to collect this data or the value of collecting the data. And that's all, you know, the data is the, the fuel for these algorithms we started out talking about. So if people stop giving the information, which is to say, stop visiting as much, stop engaging with the content, stop having those interactions with their friends and family, um, that can be really, you know, that's the same sort of bad signal to the algorithm that can have a very rapid compounding effect that makes uh, a impact on Facebook's business. So I, you know, I'm a big fan of technology making our lives easier. So for example, you know, we're recording this in the Anchor app, hashtag not sponsored, but it's fantastic. It's super easy Mm -hmm. to use. There's, you know, you can edit in the app, you can do all those different things. But, um, you know, there's a lot of times I'm seeing algorithms, even when they're not mixed up because I'm changing behavior, but just by the way they're working, um, they're not making things easier. I'll give an example. So a couple of weeks ago here, we had Thanksgiving in the United States. And so that's on Thursday, right? And everybody mm-hmm. is liking everybody else's turkey picture. And on Monday or Tuesday, I'm still seeing pictures mm-hmm. from Thursday. So they're, they're, I assume they're bubbling up because the algorithm is saying, oh, my goodness, a lot of people are reacting to these pictures. Um, we better show them to Christoph because, you know. Um, that's right. <laughs> And but it's like, what's why do I have to see the turkeys four days later? <laughs> That's right. They're like, people love pictures of turkeys. Like in March, you know, they're like, oh, it's a turkey picture. Quick, you know, get it out in front of people. People love turkey pictures. Yeah, it's it's it, it, the algorithms are are dumb. <laughs> I mean, they're very sophisticated, but they're on their own quite quite dumb. I mean, and and the extrapolation of this is you know, very, very, very fancy algorithms that are not sort of, you know, linear necessarily is really what we're talking about in terms of AI. And that's why you hear sort of things about baking and bias and the training data for AI programs being a concern to, to people on the sort of high tech end of things. You know, we can see and experience every day these little, these little glitches in the matrix, right? And really that's where I think it, it really, the, the, that border between consumer and marketer, like you should never feel it like that. When you feel that the algorithm is doing something that doesn't <laughs> make <wrong>. sense, <laughs> that's when you get suspicious and like the agent Smiths are coming, right? Like it's, you know, <laughs> that's the glitch in the matrix. You should never feel it. And, and that's really, you know, part of what I think, you know, started this conversation is talking about, you know, I have found um, in Apple news, I'm a big fan of discovery apps. Again, you can take all my data 
uh, if you give me a better experience. And at the, at the beginning, I found that Apple News did a great job of this. Like, oh, this is terrific. I'm going to tell you a few different sources of places I like to get my content, news, entertainment, politics. And then you're going to just keep sort of surfacing and mixing those in this delightful way that I can open one app and sort of get all of those needs met. And that's great. And as I started to interact with the content, it started to feel like, you know, the only thing I'm getting is, you know, Trump outrage news and then, you know, Kardashian updates and then like, you know, workout programs. Like all of a sudden the, the, the aperture had narrowed so much and said, yep. these are the things that she interacts with. Let's just show her more of that and then less of everything else. Um, and that's where there's a real problem as a marketer, right? So as a consumer, I'm like, hmm, I just don't feel like I'm getting that discovery quality from this experience anymore. And to your point, there's no reset button to say, let the other stuff in. <laughs> like, can you give me a better mix? There's some controls there, but they're not intuitive. They're not obvious. And, and, and as a consumer, you know, even though I'm a fairly sophisticated marketer, as any consumer where I'm just like just give me a big red button up start over you know like, <laughs> I don't want to fiddle with these little settings that give me minute control just give me a like give me a control z give me a big red start over button like just this is not good I've gotten to a bad place and so that's feeling that that border like you're making decisions for me and I can feel that you're cutting me off from other content I would want and now this app is not a great experience um, right so if you feel it it's not being done well it, it's kind of Yep. So what's interesting about the discussion, I, I didn't even think about that until you just brought it up. Um, content algorithms, they should have, mm -hmm. they should expire after 30 days. After 30 days, yeah. you either forget about the previous time frame or it goes into like a lower priority. You know what I mean? So like you prioritize what you talked about in the last or what you uh, consumed in the last 30 days. And the other stuff is kind of in the back of the algorithm's mind, I guess. Um, but I'll be interested yeah. to see. I mean, I don't know who's going to do that, but that's a great idea, Carrie. I, I think it. I think it, it'll get. I mean, the element of time has has been. <laughs> I, I would think in the evolution of things, you know, way you know, way back in the Stone Age, like twenty five years ago, <laughs> the priority was like transactional, like. I got to get as much money from you, Christoph, as I can in this transaction. I need you to buy as much stuff because I don't have permission to talk to you to see if you can, I can get you to come back. Um, and I don't know anything about what you have bought in the past and what you might buy in the future. So I can only maximize getting as much money from you in this transaction as possible. And we've really shifted now to uh, a more subscription-based model or a more recurring revenue model or a loyalty or advocacy model, which is all about the lifetime value of a customer. Um, and so, again, this is where Amazon was so prescient in understanding the value of knowing, you know, if you look in your purchase history, you can go all the way back to the first thing you bought on Amazon. Right. They know everything you've purchased from them for the whole life of your account. And that's really powerful information. Um, now, to that point, you know, the, the element of time that says, oh, you know what? 15 years ago, Carrie used to buy a bunch of books about architecture and interior design, but it's been 13 years since she bought one. Let's not put that in the recommendations. You know, let's focus the recommendations on the that in the last, you know, seven to 30 days. And then maybe some stuff that you looked at 30 or 45 days ago that maybe you're like, oh yeah, I never did get around to buying that. You know, they have a very sort of smart way of looking at this. And I think that's only naturally going to make its way into 
um, you know, content discovery algorithms and then sort of the domain where I spend a lot of my time, which is looking at you know, the social media platforms and how can you as an individual and how can you as a brand, how do you break in when the algorithm is such a strong gatekeeper? Um, it's almost like if you know, you've ever tried to get a job and they say, well, you have to have experience. Well, that's great for everyone who has experience, but what about the first time? What's, how do you get in the first time when you don't have that experience? Uh, content <laughs> sort of has the same struggle. It doesn't have a resume. It doesn't have a credit history. <laughs> so, so what kind of, that is a great uh, comparison. What, um, so what, do we, uh, what, what kind of tips do we have for marketers to break algorithms or not break them, but get into them? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one is just understanding that they exist and that they control a lot of what people are going to see. So, you know, when we, we work exclusively with B2B companies on their social media strategy. So a lot of our discussion um, as B2B marketers are want to do, B2B marketers who as consumers will behave like perfectly normal consumers will go to work and put in place these programs like we talked about and laughed about earlier, where it's like, I don't know, they came to the website once, let me just email them every day for a month. Um, we just do really not smart things. Uh, we, we lose our context, but we talk a lot about, you know, how do we find the intersection between what your customer or your prospect is already doing and what they already care about and the content you're going to create. So if you want to, you know, um, get into an algorithm, uh, you know, get into the content feed of someone who's really interested in, um, you know, cybersecurity, um, you've got to think about like, okay, well, what are people, what are they already talking about? Are they looking at breaches? Are they looking at malware? Are they concerned about, uh, you know, supporting their, you know, better cybersecurity awareness? Like, don't make up a new topic and then do all the work to try to get people interested in it. You know, look at the landscape of what the people you're trying to reach are already interested in, because almost every instance, <coughs> The, the means that they use to consume information and the algorithms that keep out stuff from their view are already going to be tuned to those things they already care about. It's hard to make a new thing for people to care about. Does that make sense? It, it does. And it also depends on what your goal is, right? So some of it is you want to be seen. But I'll give you an example here. Very, very um, subtle plug, I guess. Um, sure. So, uh, you know, as I'm talking about, um, you know, content marketing, Right. So I'm listed mm -hmm. as top 14 content marketer. And the way you end up in these lists is you tweet about the topics and you use the mm -hmm. hashtag. So when my goal was to be listed and keep moving up the list, like ultimately, like, yes, I want people to read my content. Yes, I want people to click. But for that campaign, the goal wasn't for anybody to click for on anything. The goal was that whenever people run their lists, I mm -hmm. would show up. Right. So I yes. could care less how many people actually look at it. And so then, so then I, I, I broke that algorithm, if you want to call it that's, that for, that's right? very smart. Yes. That's <laughs> what you, you, uh, you manipulated that algorithm to your benefit <laughs> for content, sure. for content marketing. And I was like, Hey, you know, what's the next one we want to go after? And I thought, Hey, digital marketing is a good one. So then I mm -hmm. broke the top 100 in the digital marketing. Right. And how did I do that? I really, a lot of cases, I just tweeted about content marketing and ha and added the digital marketing hashtag. Mm -hmm. Um, so it kind of depends on your goal, right? So what I say, those are um, uh, those campaigns worked 100%. People ask me about it all the time. And they say, right. how do you get to be in the top 100? And, you know, somebody said, oh, it's only number 94. I'm like, well, I just started. 
and the other thing is there's <laughs> hundreds of thousands of marketers out there, right? Yeah. So, um, but it also depends on the goal. That's absolutely true. And I think you're, you know, you're a great example, which is, you know, you understand like, what do people that I want to reach marketers, what do they already care about? What are they already <laughs> mm -hmm. trying to understand better content marketing, digital marketing? And then once you find them and meet them there at the point where you have a mutual interest, then you have an opportunity to engage with them and go, you know, my particular area of interest around content marketing is around business storytelling or is about, you know, content performance. And then I go, that's interesting, Christoph. I never thought about that. What do you mean by content performance? And now I'm engaged with you and I'm right in your wheelhouse. But you didn't start by saying, I want to be on the number one uh, person on the list for content performance, which would have been fine because the list would have been one person, right? <laughs> so like, <laughs> you would have won, <laughs> but would you have really? Um, so you really came about it, I think, in, in a strategic way. And I, I would... I would hope that more marketers um, start to understand that that it's you have to plot a course, you have to do campaigns with specific goals like that. That say, first step is understanding where's that intersection between the thing <laughs> I want to talk about and the thing this person already cares about. Let me meet but, them there, and then we can have a, a further conversation. When Carrie, that is a fantastic comment. When the content performance book comes out in February, it's already available on Amazon. Um, the way we will brand what you just said, however, will be the number one and foremost expert <laughs> in content marketing. Perfect. So, <laughs> so not, I'm number one out of one. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. There's a whole, there's a whole field of, uh, you know, of thought around like create your own category. This is when it's time. When you need to be the number one expert in the field, create your own field. Create your own field. Just call it something else. That's the uh, content performance, the next level of content marketing. There you go. Um, all right, good. I think we uh, we got the topic covered. Leetail. So you are at Leetail. What is Leetail? Uh, Leetail is a B2B social media agency. Um, we work, as I mentioned, sp you know, specifically and, and exclusively with B2B clients on developing um, a, a social media strategy. So it's not just thinking about, you know, how do you feed your content into Facebook, Twitter, mm -hmm. LinkedIn, uh, but really thinking all around, how do you make a social media program that on its own delivers some business value and that also sort of feathers nicely into the rest of your marketing program. So social media strategy and management, influencer marketing, uh, social outreach for account-based marketing, employee advocacy, and paid social. That's sort of the, the components of our, our general social media program. And those are the areas that we work with our clients on uh, the most. Awesome. So if people want to reach out to you, they can reach you on Twitter. Hey, Carrie, I think, right? Is that what it was? That's right. Hey, Carrie, or leetail.com. Carrie, thanks for all the insights. We appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for listening.